Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Just a couple things I wanted to catch you up on uh, over at Raw Story. They're reporting about a 24 year old Tennessee man. His family is now calling for justice now that the uh, police body cams are out. Johnny J.J. Baldwin, 24, fell into a creek as he was trying to flee police on foot after being pulled over for a minor traffic violation. As he called out for help, cops can be heard calling him a dumbass and taunting him while failing to provide help. Well then, swim, says one officer. You dumbass jumped in the river. One officer finally offered to help. Another officer stopped him. When one officer pointed out that Baldwin was submerged and not coming back up, another was dismissive, saying he was doing it on purpose. He drowned. He's dead now. Speaking of ABC News, Winchester Police Chief Richard Lewis called the incident a sad situation, but said the cops made the right decision. In California, in Santa Cruz, a man, Stephen Carrillo, murdered two deputies on June 6th. And uh, turns out he's, he's scrawled in blood on his car hood, Boog, as in Boogaloo, and I became unreasonable. And uh, Boogaloo, of course, this far-right white identity group that wants to bring about a race war and a civil war in the United States, literally wants people going house to house, killing their neighbors. And the phrase, I became unreasonable, writes uh, Bradley uh, Zedronsky for NBC News, the phrase, I became unreasonable, has become a meme in public Boogaloo communities on Facebook. Facebook, by the way, has just turned into a right-wing swamp because uh, Zuckerberg and his right-wing billionaire buddies are like, hey, it's all good. But anyhow, it became unreasonable. This is a reference to Marvin Heemeyer, an anti-government extremist who bulldozed 13 buildings in Granby, Colorado in retribution for a zoning dispute. He then killed himself. This occurred back in 2004. On June 4th, in fact, almost 16 years to the day of Carrillo's attack. So the Boogaloo boys are now killing cops as well as looking to kill black people. By the way, I don't know if the, if the cops that he killed were minorities. Uh, Squire, Ma- Megan Squire, community science pro- professor who tracks online extremism, says uh, killdozer, which is what, you know, how he refers to himself, this uh, 16 years ago, uh, Milton Heemeyer, the I became unreasonable guy. Killdozer represents the intersection between the libertarian ideal of small government and the militant fantasy of the boogaloo. Heemeyer, as Killdozer, meticulously planned a revenge fantasy on some local government entities that he blamed for excessive regulation of his, of his business. Carrillo also wrote the phrase, stop the duopoly in blood. This is a not, an otherwise nonviolent political slogan uh, frequently pushed by third-party and libertarian candidates. His uh, Facebook page, he was supporting libertarians on there. It goes on, but this is uh, just grim stuff. By the way, somebody called in yesterday, a conservative called in yesterday and said that he wanted to know how progressives respond to this. He was citing a a piece in the Washington Post, and the piece in the Washington Post says there's uh, 1,004 deaths by cop in 2019, 370 were white people, 235 were black people. So that's 36%, almost 37, 36.9% white, 23.4% black. And, And he was citing this as basically 
proof that the police are not disproportionately killing black people. So, you know, let's just, you know, look at that math. We've got 191 million white people in the United States. There are 42 million black people in the United States, which means that for every black person, there's 4.5 white people. If you can use that as a ratio, if we have 370 white people killed by cops, 235 black people killed by cops, if you divide the 370 white people by 4.5, which is the ratio of white people to black people, what you get is 82. 82 is the number that you would expect of black people to be killed in 2019 if 370 white people are killed. You would expect 82 black people, right? Because, you know, 4.5 white people for every one black person. So you'd expect 82 to have been killed. But how many were actually killed? 235, which is uh, 280% more. So it's almost three times as many black people being killed by police as white people. I don't know why people can't do this math. It's simple math. It's right there. It's frankly, much of it is even in the Washington Post article. You know, people want to justify, frankly, you know, their racism. I don't know how you can stop that. Joe Madison is on the line with us, the Black Eagle. Joe's uh, show is uh, every morning from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. on uh, Sirius XM on the Urban View channel. And uh, I would say the most highly rated progressive talk host in America, Joe Madison. Joe, welcome back to the program. I'm curious your thoughts on the state of things right now. You've talked in, in the past on this program many times about having a movement, not a moment. Have we moved from moment to movement? Oh, yes. No question about it. Let me give you a classic example. All these young people have said, I've got two viruses that might kill me. One is biological, COVID-19, and the other is political, social, and that is what George Floyd and others have represented. And I'm saying to you that what I think the vast majority of young people have said, I'm willing to sacrifice my health. I'm willing to sacrifice that I might be infected with COVID-19. But the difference is, and I'll say this, I've said it a hundred times. I was taught that the difference between a moment and a movement has always been in history, sacrifice. Every movement that has made change has required sacrifice of some type. Let me give you an example. Today, most people may not know this, we call it Loving Day. And this is the day that I believe that the United States Supreme Court ruled on the fact that we could have that interracial marriages can't be outlawed. The loving couple, when they got married here in Washington, D.C., because they couldn't get married, now get this, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, they got married, went back to Virginia, and then late one night, the police break into their home and arrest both of them for being married. And so for many of us, we call this loving day, but they sacrificed, they sacrificed, but that sacrifice changed this country to where we don't even think about interracial marriages, the way this country thought about it for centuries. So yes, it has become a movement and not just in the United States, but globally. Joe, we saw after Charlottesville, after Trump's meltdown about very fine people, the very, very next thing he did was do a rally in Phoenix, a blue town, where he talked about pardoning Joe Arpaio. As a result, there was massive violence outside the event and in the day following, uh, the Arizona Republic reporting uh, some screams, some poured milk on their face, uh, skin slicked in sweat, burned from chemicals and pepper balls. Then when Trump finds himself being impeached, uh, what does he do? He goes to Minneapolis, to Ilhan Omar's district, again, trying to provoke violence. Now he's going on Juneteenth to Tulsa, the former home of Greenwood, you know, the, where in 1921, the United States bombed 
a city burned 35 square blocks yep. to the ground, killed 300 people. Right. Your, your thoughts on whether this is no, going to work no, for him? No. It looks like he's trying to continue this. Well, yeah, yeah. it's, it's going to work for his base. But let me make one correction. I sit on the uh, board of the uh, National Red Cross and of the American Red Cross. And, and uh, let me correct one thing. The Red Cross went in and actually documented that there were 600 people who were killed, not 300. And that is according to the official count of the Red Cross. But let me also say, I had a caller today, (laughs) Tom, that grew up in Tulsa, went to school in Tulsa, and never learned about the 1921 Tulsa riot and said there probably wasn't even a paragraph in their history books. I guarantee you that Donald Trump didn't know a darn thing about the Tulsa riot. And I can almost say the same thing, that he probably didn't know anything about Juneteenth, which speaks to the point that neither of those have anything to do with each other. Juneteenth was when, as you know, Juneteenth was when the federal troops arrived in Galveston, Texas, after the Civil War had ended and announced that the Civil War had ended. The slaves didn't know it. It is some suggest that the slaveholders did know it. And so for all those months, these individuals remained slaves. And Juneteenth has always been what we often refer to as the African-Americans in Texas. It's their Fourth of July, and it has always been celebrated. It's been celebrated with speeches. I go to Galveston to participate in talks and lectures. One doesn't have anything to do with the other. One came about. Juneteenth in 1865. And of course, as you just reminded people, the Tulsa riot was 1921. So how he conflates (laughs) the two is beyond me. All he's doing is hijack. Oh, who knows? You know, Mm. if not just Stephen Miller, Stephen Miller types. And I would, and I would quite honestly include some of the African-Americans who recently met with him and Mm -hmm. either suggested he do this, probably gave him a crash course on these two events, and they decided they could politicize it. That's really what's going on. This is the same thing he did when he hijacked St. John's Episcopal Church and the Bible. Same thing. No ifs, ands, buts about it. Yeah. Joe, I'm wondering your thoughts on what happens if Trump loses the election and starts screaming voter fraud and refuses to leave the White House or if we'll even have an election. No, we'll have an election. He can't stop the election. And I'll make it very simple. You just send in the Marines and escort his ass out. Simple as that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's that's exactly he'll, he'll have between the election and January 20th. He's going to go. I wouldn't even worry about that. Yeah. Thank you for the reassurance, Joe. I think you're I think you're right. I hope you're right. You know, it's great talking with you. Joe oh, Madison. I'm, I'm, you, trust me. You got it. OK. And you, the Joe Madison show uh, six to 10 a.m. over on Sirius XM channel 126 Monday through Friday. It's best in radio. This is the Tom Hartman program. The great Joe Madison. Hey, did you know that Hillary Clinton actually won Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Florida in the 2016 election? It's on page 92 of my new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting. Kevin in uh, Watsonville, California. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? It's an honor to talk to you, Tom. 
And I agree a thousand percent that black, brown, all lives matter. But it seems like the Native Americans of North and South America are kind of being left out of this because for 528 years, since 1492, there's been genocide and all the unspeakable uh, horrors that these folks have uh, taken on over the years, you know, uh, Trail of Tears, Wounded Knee, that it's just... Uh, it, it's hard to believe that, you know, the white people can, you know, feel that they are being mistreated because what would they feel if Native Americans and Africans back in the day had the technology to invade Europe and, you know, the shoe was on the other foot? So yeah. I'll get off my soapbox and I'll let you take over. No, I get it, Kevin. And, I, and, and there, there's a lot of grievance <laughs> to go around. We've heard from Hispanic Americans who are concerned that all this focus on black Americans is going to distract from their cause. And, you know, you're saying, hey, wait a minute, what about Native Americans? I get all that. And Native Americans have, as I pointed out many times, suffered the worst genocide in the history of the United States, in the history of the world, frankly. And I would say African Americans are, you know, right behind that or maybe even parallel to it. I don't know what the numbers would be. But this moment, which is focusing on the plight of African Americans who are being discriminated against and slaughtered in this country, not just by the police, but right across the board. I think that maintaining that focus will be a good thing. I think it's an important thing. I think, you know, I, I know that there are some on the right who are actually trying to diminish that focus by using arguments like what you're making. I'm guessing that's not the case for you, Kevin. And if this focus on black lives is successful, and I'm agreeing with Joe, I think this is a movement and I think this is going to be successful. If this is successful, it will change America in ways that will help Native Americans, that will help Hispanic Americans, that will help Asian Americans. Um, and, and, you know, that'll functionally be a good thing. So, and, you know, at any point, if uh, Native Americans want to speak out and hold their protests, I would say this is not the moment to do that, you know, just in turn, because you won't get anything in the news cycle. But the next time there's a, you know, some sort of major outrage against Native Americans, and they happen with some regularity that can be publicized effectively, by all means, they should be going for it, Kevin. Your thoughts? Well, no, when I said Native Americans, that included the Hispanic people from South America also, because right. the uh, Spaniards, the untold horrors, and then they just moved north, and it just, the genocide yeah. continued. Yeah, I get that. And I referred to Hispanics the other day as Native Americans and and uh, somebody tried to correct me on Twitter. And no, I'm sorry, the majority of people from Central and South America are not principally descended from Spaniards. They're descended from the people who were there, you know, 30,000 years ago, the, 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 you know, the, the indigenous people. Kevin, thank you for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. We're reading today from Warrior Is by Harley and Robin Zephyr. It's the story of their great-grandfather who, in real life, killed Custer at Little Bighorn. And in fact, there's a map of the war, as it were, the battle. And they say that he is now the spirit keeper of Custer, which is remarkable. And there's a page and a half introduction to the book, and then it becomes a historically accurate novel, basically. This story is the traditional and cultural account of the life of Nikokju Lakota warrior Mato Nianpi, saved by Bear, his name in English, also later known as Scarleg. Warrior is based upon a true story. What you are about to read has been told to us through our family, passed down as oral history from generation to generation. Every family has its own story. This is ours. It's up to you to visualize and experience the events described herein in order to determine what you believe or what you choose to accept from what you learn from these pages. You've likely never read a story quite like this before. In Warrior Is, the reader is able to visualize and experience the events and circumstances of Mato Nianpi's life. Many times the story is told in the present tense, such as if you were walking with Saved by Bear and his people as the events unfold. This was our original manner of storytelling. Other times the story is narrated in the past tense to account for a past perspective. Those of us who may not be entirely fluent in particular words or specific language as much as we may be fluent in spirit and honest communication, the life messages many times can be more meaningful than just the written or spoken words. Warrior Is follows the timeline from the time of creation, moving through Saved by Bear's birth in 1849 and going up to July 1876, two weeks after the Greasley Grass Battle. Please exercise your free will and follow your conscience when reading this story. The spiritual side is called upon you to open your spirit so that you may read this tale and learn about these events through your own spirit. And, you know, continues sort of like in that line, but here, right to the book. Prologue. He smelled the yellow of the sun. His spirit was alive and energetic. He felt the energy in his chest and all along the blood running through his veins. He looked to his left to see his great friend by his side. The strong scent of sage caressed his nostrils and reminded him of home. The movement over the high-running hilly ridge to the south caught his eye. He and Swift Bear sensed and felt the pathway opening up. So much had occurred so quickly, so suddenly, so dramatically. Their call to duty, his call to duty, filled his mind, his heart, his spirit. Today, it was meant to happen. It was presented to the people from the Creator. The plan was made. The warriors summoned. The preparation was done. It all led to this place, this portal in time. The sparse clouds to the west resembled mare's tails, and for a brief moment he remembered his white stone friend in the White Mountains. He remembered his spiritual commitment to protect his people, Grandmother Earth, and the sacred Hees Hapa. And time stood still for a moment, a small moment in time, through all of the ancient and original history of all the moments of time. 
And as the group of the horse-mounted soldiers rode briskly over the far ridge, the Creator shined that warm, nurturing light upon these warriors. Such as Creator had been doing since the beginning of time, since the beginning of Grandmother Earth and Grandfather Sky, and at the beginning of all things, all the moments of time forever had arrived here, now. It had come to this. Creator's strong will and great invisible hand had placed them here. It was the Creator all along. It always was. It always would be. For one to know what led the young Lakota warriors to be here at this fateful site near the greasy grass river on this warm, sun-drenched day, one must go back, go back in time, way back to the beginning, when it was only the Creator, and the Creator of all things decided to create a new world. Her name would be Unsimaka, Grandmother Earth, and she would be created to hold and sustain life. All kinds of beings, all kinds of people, would be given and placed upon and within her to show her love of life. And this is how it all began. Chapter 1, Origin. The human beings evolved from the spirit. Before arriving in Wind Cave, we were star people. Many of us came from a place called the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, an ancient star grouping and constellation that contains worlds comprised of the gift of life-giving water. Water is life. Mini Wikoni. The Pleiadian influence is an absolute, but those of us who claim to be relatives of the Pleiadians share a common bond with other indigenous people, regardless of where we are geographically on the earth. We will always remain Pleiadian star people. Spiritually, we have become human beings of different races and ethnicities, but the origin of our spirit is the water. And for us, and as to who we are, as the tribal people in a family way, our name is Minkoju, it's evidence. It means life's subsistence through the gathering and planting by the waters and or river. The Minikochu spend their lives living by the waters. This is something that many of our own people do not know or understand, but this is our history, not only of our physical existence, but also the history of our spiritual existence on Unsimaka. The book is Warrior Is by Robin and Harley Zephyr. My goodness, welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. I am convinced. Well, I guess Joe actually was saying that. At first, I thought he was saying that uh, Trump is not going to Tulsa intentionally. And then he suggested that perhaps some of the people who had advised him who know this history were, you know, helping suggest this. I don't think there's any coincidence here at all. You know, after Charlottesville and he got trashed for that, he goes to Phoenix and tries to, and doesn't just try, succeeds in creating basically a riot against and on behalf of Joe Arpaio and uh, against and on behalf of, of Hispanic Americans. And, uh, you know, then after uh, he gets impeached, he goes to Minneapolis to Ilhan Omar's district and, and trashes her, you know, trying to create riots. I think he's going to Tulsa because he's hoping to reprise the 1921 riots, frankly. And, and let's keep in mind, these were white people rioting, killing black people. And just like all across the country, we just saw a whole series of police riots. These were police rioting, injuring people. If you look at who got hurt, by and large, it was citizens, not police officers. Yeah, property maybe, but Ed in Redondo Beach, California. Hey, Ed, what's up? Yeah, uh, listen, I, I think that the conjecture of a Trump rally with Juneteenth, the day when we celebrate the emancipation of, of blacks in America, in, of all places, the city of Tulsa, which was the site of the worst massacre of black people in America, it isn't accidental at all. I mean, the intention is, you know, on the right, they like to talk about cucking people. You know, this, the intention is to cuck blacks and their allies. And this is a red meat gesture to his racist base. What is, think, I'm the, sorry, I missed, what is the verb you're using here? What's that word? To cuck, which is, it, it's a shortened version of to cuckold. Oh, and, yeah, okay. Or in, in language other people might be more familiar with, owning the libs, in this case, kind of owning, owning African Americans or owning the black people. Or exactly. In this context, to own blacks, you know, on the, the date of their emancipation, I mean, that's, right. that, the signals that he's sending, I think he really is trying to incite some kind of race war. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's no doubt about it. He believes, and probably Roger Stone, who's advising him, believes, and Stephen Miller, who you know is writing his speeches and probably was the major force behind picking this place and this date. These guys believe that if they can reinvent the racially charged conflicts in the streets across America that happened after the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If they can, you know, in 1968, that's what brought Richard Nixon, I think you could successfully argue, probably the major thing that brought Nixon into the White House in 1968 was this whole law and order thing and that whole shtick. And that Hubert Humphrey will be weak on crime because look what happened with the Democratic Convention. I mean, you had a police riot in Chicago, and then you had, after Martin Luther King was killed, you had, uh, you know, riots all over the country where people were basically uh, saying, enough, we're tired of it. We're tired of being killed. We're tired of our leaders being killed. We're tired, you know, enough. And, and it worked to the benefit of Richard Nixon. And Trump thinks he can reinvent that, that it's going to work to his benefit. I think he's wrong, but we'll find out. Eugene in Los Angeles. Hey, Eugene, what's up? Hi, Tom. Um, I want to talk about the Supreme Court's money is free speech rulings. Yeah, and, 96, uh, reason, 76 and 78, Buckley and, and uh, Bilotti, yes. Exactly. Well, Buckley and Citizens United are the ones I'm most interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, we, you have this movement and these organizations that want to overturn these rulings. And overturn really means stopping the court from making these rulings anymore. Right? The next time one of these cases goes to court, the court rules in favor of the campaign spending limits instead of against them. Uh, but you have these movements. They're trying to overturn Buckley and Citizens United by amending the Constitution. Now, there are other alternatives to overturning these rulings, other alternatives than amending the Constitution. You know the process of amending the Constitution is pretty difficult, right? So what's your point, Eugene? we got about 30 seconds. Well, there, there are federal laws that can be made. For example, you can make a federal law that requires a, a supermajority on the Supreme Court to strike down a law. You could court that. You're right. You're right. Okay. You could yeah, there, there, yeah they, this is Article 3, Section 2. It gives Congress the power to regulate the Supreme Court, uh, well, a power that Congress has not used, by the way, since after the Civil War. All I'm saying War. is this, this is what I want. I want, the, I want the Democrats to work on either making a supermajority for striking these things down or court pack. And you got the nuclear right. option now. You got the nuclear option in the, in the Senate. Yeah, I'm with you. And, and Eugene, thank you. And Elizabeth Warren actually has come right out and said that if she becomes president, she is going to expand the size of the Supreme Court and undo this conservative majority. So we'll see. We'll see. Hey, Donald Trump has said some pretty outrageous and in many cases just screamingly racist things over the years and very, very much trafficked in racist tropes, saying things like, you know, all Republicans must remember what they're witnessing here, a lynching, speaking about people attacking him for the things he's said, or I'm the least racist person you've ever encountered. I don't have a racist bone in my body, which is something that racists always say. What has happened to the respect for authority, the fear of retribution? Bring back the death penalty and bring back our police, says Donald Trump. You know, why do we need more Haitians? Why are we having people from all these asshole countries come here? We should have more people from places like Norway, says Donald Trump. Anyhow, the whole list of them is uh, posted as a video over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. Thanks so much. Cusale in Campo, California. Hey, what's up? How you doing, sir? 
I gotta say, you know, in light of the historical transformation awakening that this country is having right now regarding race issues and so on, I think is probably the biggest thing of the century. Leadership comes from bold action, and I just would like to know why would the Democratic uh, Party will not address the fact that the convention is happening in Milwaukee, one of the most successful and quietly done institutional racism system in the United States. And I think they need to address it, whether they move it from there or not, or whether it's going to happen or not. It still has to be spoken about, because if this is uh, silent uh, condoning, as far as I'm concerned. What about Milwaukee do you not like? What am I missing here? You First of all, out, it looks like the convention's going to be virtual, but what am I missing? Yeah, if you check out the racism, racist systems that they have regarding the health care, regarding drinking water, regarding loans for uh, people of color, regarding policing, they, they top the chart. They're one of the best at it. It's kind of an unspoken, under-the-radar uh, system in place. Hmm. It was under my radar. I will, uh, I'll check that out, Kusail. Thank you very much for the heads up on that. I didn't realize Milwaukee was not well thought of. Len in Silva, North Carolina. Hey, Len, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Hey, Len. What's up? Well, I was just curious. I was listening to you and Kenyatta yesterday talking about the Tulsa riots, not riots, but the destruction of Tulsa. And you were talking about the bombing. And mm -hmm. for some reason, I had it in my head. You were talking about two times that the government had bombed U.S. citizens. And uh, I was just curious if that's the case. Uh, it's it's incorrect statement. How so? One of those times was well, it wasn't, Project it wasn't Move or Project Push in Philadelphia back back in the in the sixties. Yeah, but, but the other it was, was not Greenwood in twenty one. Tom, Tom, I'm listening. Okay, it was not the military that bombed Tulsa. It was all civilians. Okay. They, what they were you doing. You think that the white civilians. Hang on just a second, yes. Lynn. Do, do you think for a moment that the white civilians who were bombing and burning Tulsa did not have the support, or excuse me, uh, Greenwood, which was they a, were a, a all Tulsa suburb, airplanes. did not have the support of the hey, white officers in the Tulsa Police Department? No, I don't. Then why did the white what officers I'm, in the Tulsa saying, Police Department allow it to happen and I can continue? Give you the, I can, Tom, wait just one second. I can give you the name of the person that was dropping the incendiaries on the, check out the Wikipedia page on it. Mm -hmm. They were all considered civilians. They were supposed to be up there just observing. And they right. had some bozo up there with turpentine-covered balls that he was dropping, he was lighting and dropping, but it was not the military. Right. I'm an, okay, I'm an so it wasn't an official an military action, Len. That's fine. I'll ignore, you know, I, I haven't read the, the Wikipedia. But even if that's the case, as I said, this is how the white power structure works. So this is how the power structure works in any country in any way, when you've got basically one group of people oppressing another group of people. And sometimes it's done under the color of law, you know, officially, and sometimes it's not, but without official sanction, it wouldn't happen. If the white police department in 1921 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, had any any dedication whatsoever to protecting the, the black people of Greenwood of the Tulsa suburb, in my opinion, that would not have happened. So, uh, Jonathan in Portland. Hey, Jonathan, what's up? Hi, Tom. So, a um, little historical perspective. I find that the closest analog that I can find to Trump is Emperor Nicholas II, who was forced to ab abdicate the throne in 1917. And I was reading Leon Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution, and he has what I think is the most exquisitely perfect account of Trump. And he describes Nicholas as, if you'd indulge me for a moment so I could share an excerpt, it says, recoiled in hostility before everything gifted and significant, he felt at ease only among completely mediocre and brainless people, saintly fakers, holy men, to whom he did not have to look up. He had his uh, more prop, indeed, it was rather keen, but it was not active, not possessed of a grain of initiative, enviously defensive, he selected his ministers on principle of continual deterioration, men of brain and character. He summoned only in extreme situations when there was no other way out, just as we call a surgeon to save our lives. As soon as the crisis had passed, he hastened to part with these counselors, 
who were too tall for him. This selection operated so systematically that uh, when the Russian Revolution came knocking at the door, his advisor said, Your Majesty, there's not one reliable or honest man left around you. All the best men have been removed or have retired. <laughs> they remain only those of ill repute. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. I get it. Jonathan, thank you. Nicholas II. Okay, I'll have to look that one up. I'm not, I'm not a student of the Russian Revolution. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. I think more correctly, that was the Bolshevik Revolution, was it not? In any case, it's the place where smart people get their news. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Our book for the Tom Hartman Book Club today is A Nation Forged by Crisis, A New American History by Jay Sexton. And I'm reading from the introduction. This is page nine. The quest for national security and global power, America's shifting position in the international economy, and fluctuations in immigration have made the United States the nation that it is today. Americans' foreign relations have conditioned its history not only in their cumulative effects over the long haul, but also as a result of their volatility. In periods of crisis, America's position in the world has lurched in unexpected directions. For as inexorable as the rise of the United States appears in retrospect, there have been contingent moments in which the very existence of our nation was up for grabs. This is the essence of crisis. The world turned upside down. The known replaced by the unknown. Panic reigning as people struggle to maintain their balance and shifts in the very ground beneath their feet. It came with a speed and ferocity that left men dazed, New York Times correspondent Elliot Bell wrote of Wall Street's catastrophic collapse in October of 1929. Quote, the market seemed like an insensate thing that was wreaking a wild and pitiless revenge upon those who thought to master it, end quote. Crises are contagious, spreading like viruses from one realm to another. It's not without reason that the word crisis was associated with medical conditions and health scares in the 19th century. Each of the periods under consideration in this book were less a singular crisis than a set of interlinked crises. A political crisis could trigger an economic panic, which in turn could intensify social conflict, and so on. As these pandemics spread through the body politic, crisis itself was normalized, becoming an almost accepted characteristic of an age. Just as foreign crises have spread to the United States, domestic ones have spilled across its borders, unsettling foreign countries and peoples, as well as reconfiguring America's connections to the world. Consider the fateful winter of secession that followed the 1860 election of Abraham Lincoln. The crisis over slavery that divided the Union into warring sections that led to a series of sharp reversals in America's position in the global system. The foreign capital that had rushed into the roaring American economy in the preceding decades suddenly began to flee. Indeed, more capital left the United States in 1860 to 1862 than came into it, also a once-in-a-century occurrence. One of the world's most valuable commodities and America's largest exports, southern cotton, was confined to the ports of the Confederacy as a result of Richmond's ill-fated diplomatic strategy, leading to unemployment and social unrest in the British textile town of Lancashire. The most unexpected reversal was how the national security that the United States had attained after the war against Mexico in the 1840s was suddenly imperiled with European powers encroaching once again upon the Western Hemisphere. Meanwhile, the Confederate emissaries across the Atlantic in search of alliance with Britain. Our country, Secretary of State William Seward lamented in early 1861, after having expelled all European powers from the continent, now threatened to relapse into an aggravated form of its colonial experience and, like India, Turkey, China, and Italy, become the theater of transatlantic intervention and rapacity. A wider view of American history that looks beyond the nation's borders brings into focus not only the migration patterns, economic flows, and international rivalries that have connected the United States to the world, but also those rare moments in which the very existence of the nation was in question. Perhaps none was more pregnant with implications than the autumn of 1877, when the fate of the Patriots' bid for independence hung in the balance. 
Having proclaimed their independence to the world the previous 4th of July, their cause had stalled on the battlefield and in the diplomatic courts of the old world. I think the game is pretty near up, Washington privately confessed at year's end. To accomplish their independence is not quite so easy as to declare it, the British philosopher Jeremy Bentham haughtily remarked. But then a series of events forever changed the course of modern history. The stunning Patriot victory at the Battle of Saratoga in October. The drafting of the Articles of Confederation in November that for all its limitations further demonstrated the political resolve of the Americans. And most of all, the alliance signed with France in February 1778, which provided the Patriots with the resources, military assistance, and naval power that ultimately tipped the scales in their favor. There are comparable Saratoga moments in other crises in U.S. history, as we shall see. These contingent moments played out in their own distinctive ways, but are joined by a common denominator that has been curiously forgotten in our age of U.S. global power. Foreign states and people have played decisive roles in the critical moments of American history. As we make our way through our own era of global instability in an unprecedentedly interconnected world, there's perhaps no more important lesson from the past to keep in mind. Crisis may beget crisis, Franklin Roosevelt said, as his administration transitioned from battling the Great Depression to entering the Second World War. But the progress underneath does not wholly halt. It does go forward, end quote. Like so many of Roosevelt's public statements, this one reveals a truth even as it conceals others. The United States came out on the other side of its greatest crises as a stronger and more efficiently organized nation, as Roosevelt suggested. The process of mobilizing resources to counter threats catalyzed innovations in political economy, such as the creation of a national financial system during the Civil War, and the economic reforms of the New Deal. The book is A Nation Forged by Crisis by Jay Sexton. William in Chicago. Hey, William, what's up? Oh, hey, Tom, how are you? Good. Um, I wanted to ask about, is there any movement toward making Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico states? And what do we have to do? Do we have to take over the Senate, the House, and the presidency for that to happen? Yes. Yeah, we do. It's, it's something that has to be approved by Congress. I don't recall if it requires a supermajority or not. It's in the Constitution. But yeah, it has to go through the House, the Senate, and the White House, and it may even have to go through the states. I'm not sure. I'll have to go back. And that, uh, but I know that. Is it full? Go ahead. I'm sorry about it. Is it filibuster proof? Can it just be a simple majority? Because last week That's, it just that, showed how little power Washington D.C. has. I mean, they have no voting. They don't get the vote for senators. The mayor's hands were tied, and it just—it's so unfair to that district. And I, I do believe that uh, Puerto Rico has a referendum in November, and they made it a very simple yes or no question if they want to become a state. And correct me if I'm right. wrong about that, but I believe that is going, going to happen. I believe that that's the case too, William. And in the past, they voted not to become a state, but there's a lot of questions around some of those elections. It's more problematic with Puerto Rico because they've operated as a semi-independent country. Washington, D.C. is simply part of the United States, and it's, I believe, between eight and 900,000 people who live in Washington, D.C., which yeah. is larger than the population of Wyoming. It's larger than the population of Vermont. There may be other states that it's larger than the population of or in the neighborhood of the population of. And it's crazy that they don't have statehood. There's a simple reason, though, why they don't have statehood, and that is that up until recently, the city was majority black. It may still be majority black, but it's getting closer and closer to 50-50. But still, there's a lot, you know, it's a, it's a very blue town and it's a very black town. And therefore, the Republican Party has blocked for better part of 40 years, 50 years, any effort for statehood for Washington, D.C. And they will continue to block it. I mean, you got Rand Paul right now blocking an anti-lynching bill in the Senate that was passed by the House nearly unanimously. I think there were six or four votes against it. It will pass in the Senate, but Rand Paul is holding it up because, oh my God, we can't, you know, we can't outlaw lynching in the United States. Right. It's only 2020. Yeah. 
And so, you know, I'm not I'm not holding my breath, but I agree with you that this is a very, very important they have, issue. Is there some kind of movement towards that? Because they have to do it. There they, is in D.C. They to, <laughs> and they, and, they, and they, they mention it all the time. But, but it, it, it needs to become, uh, William, this needs to become part of the Democratic Party platform. If it's not already, it certainly hasn't been in the past. And we need to be pushing it loudly. I'm with you. Jerry in San Francisco. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. What's on my mind is we're going to have a rally. I'm not organizing it, but a rally at the City Hall of Vallejo. So I hope anybody in the Bay Area who cares about police brutality and so forth would attend this. You know, when it comes to smaller town reputations of police brutality, I think Vallejo is at the bottom of the barrel. So I hope people come out. In other words, they're bad when it comes to police brutality. That's right. Yeah, they are. They're being investigated for a lot of things over the last 10 years. And I think it's coming to a head with the with the shooting of uh, Sean Monterosa last week. And real quickly, just a side comment. Three weeks ago, you were talking about things that would reduce stress. This was before George Floyd, really, why we're locked up in our, our houses. And you said journaling would be one of the things that reduces stress. And my wife, Mm -hmm. tomorrow will be the 40th anniversary of starting journals. She's written uh, pretty consistently for 40 years. And it's really amazing. And now, since we're going through a tremendous amount of stress losing our friend uh, to the the Vallejo Police Department, it's really helping. So I I put that out to everybody who's listening to you right now, that that's a real good way to reduce the stress. There you go. And Jerry, she's going to be leaving a great gift to children, grandchildren, future generations. You know, journaling, particularly during extraordinary times like this, that literally will be talked about in in historic terms. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that Chief Justice John Roberts, back when he worked for Ronald Reagan, came up with a way that Congress and the White House could get around the Supreme Court? Specifically, they were trying to blow up uh, Roe v. Wade and Brown v. Board, but it could be used by Democrats right now. It's fascinating. It's in my new book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Check it out. Thanks so much. Helena in Vancouver, Washington. Hey, Helena, what's up? Hi, Tom. First of all, thank you so much for everything that you do. First, I'm caller, so I'm very nervous. Please forgive me for that. Originally, I'm from Poland, and I'm here over 40 years. And what I see what's happening in this country of mine, it's absolutely sickening. But at the same time, I'm hopeful because it reminds me of the solidarity movement in Poland then changed the entire world. And it happened with, with people, with people standing up, just like what we are doing. Before, like I, yeah, before I talk about Trump's tweets, I would like to just very quickly point out about police reform, that the police reporting, false reporting, should be automatically a crime. We hear so much about posting up reporting, and I don't understand what's happening, you know, uh, from the legal standpoint of view. Another one is that in the training, I believe that they should have guest speakers. In Poland, when I was going to school, we have guest speakers all the time, at least once a month. People that were Holocaust uh, survivors would come police, nurses, uh, 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 people Come from into the schools you're talking about? In Poland. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's a great idea. In answer to your question, Helena, about why the police can basically get away with what they get away with, in 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court came up with this doctrine of qualified immunity, which makes it damn near impossible to stop a cop or to sue them or hold them accountable. It needs to be changed, and the Supreme Court may be looking at changing it. We'll see. I'm curious, your thoughts on the president, I believe his name is Duda, the president, president of Poland. I understand that he's moving Poland in a very authoritarian direction. Yes. So when I talk to my family, and this is some phenomena that I truly do not understand, how in Poland people are divided, and uh, mm. how a lot of people stand by his side, especially so that Poland is extremely, you know, we don't have that many people from other countries, right? So, and it's very much so Catholic. So this phenomena that is going on through the entire world you know, right now, when the white supremacy is taking over, it's quite troubling. But, you know, mm-hmm. with that, I would like to really thank Mayor, Seattle Mayor Janet Durkin, for her answer to uh, Trump, that she simply uh, said, make us all safe. Go back to your bunker. Hashtag right. Black Lives Matter. Bravo. I, you know, yeah. I, we would answer like from the day one of this presidency, uh, maybe we would have a little bit different, you know, outcome yeah, right I get now. It. Helena, I'm sorry we're, we're out of time, but, but you know, uh, spot on, spot on. And thank you for the call. And it's great to hear from you. And thank you for, for uh, sharing your thoughts on the, on the current government in Poland with me, too. I've been watching that with consternation. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Embattled Vote in America from the Founding to the Present by Alan J. Lichtman. This is from the introduction titled Voters and Non-Voters. On February 18, 1965, advocates for the voting rights of disenfranchised African Americans ordered a rare nighttime march in the small town of Marion, Alabama, part of the state's Black Belt, to protest the jailing of James Orange. Prosecutors had charged Orange with contributing to the delinquency of minors after he enlisted students in voter registration drives. Alabama state troopers responded to the protest by beating peaceful demonstrators with billy clubs and sending terrified marchers fleeing into the night. Some sought refuge from police violence in a nearby restaurant, Max Cafe. State troopers followed them into the establishment, however, and one of those troopers, James Bonnard Fowler, fatally shot an unarmed 26-year-old black voting rights worker, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Insisting that Jackson had reached for a gun, Fowler claimed self-defense. Eyewitnesses told a very different story. They said that Jackson was trying to protect his mother from police violence and that Fowler shot him deliberately and without provocation. While Jackson languished in a hospital for eight days before dying from his wound, Alabama officials issued a warrant for his arrest for the assault of a police officer. They did not arrest, indict, or discipline Fowler, or even release his name to the public. Fowler remained on the state police force, and a year later he shot and killed another unarmed black man, Nathan Johnson Jr., during an altercation at the Alabaster City Jail. State police officials were quick to purge both killings from Fowler's personnel file, but fired him in 1968 for assaulting his white police supervisor. In 2007, as part of a federal-state effort to reopen cold cases from the civil rights era, Alabama prosecutors indicted the 73-year-old Fowler for murder. Two weeks before trial was set to begin in 2010, Fowler pleaded guilty to manslaughter and served five months of a six-month sentence. Fowler died in 2015, 50 years after killing Jimmy Lee Jackson. Americans were dying for the vote more than 175 years after the nation's founding because the framers made a consequential mistake when they drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights the Constitution's first 10 amendments. They failed to enshrine in these pivotal documents of our democracy the right to vote, not just for men or even only white men, but for any American. Among many enumerated rights that the government cannot abridge, the right to vote remained conspicuously absent and remains so to this day. All subsequent amendments protecting the voting rights of racial minorities, women and young people, the 15th Amendment on race, the 19th Amendment on sex, 26th Amendment on age, are framed negatively stipulating not what the states must do to ensure people's voting rights in America's democratic republic, but what they cannot do.
Jimmy Lee Jackson died, one could plausibly argue, because the political leaders who drafted these amendments perpetuated the framers' mistake of failing to establish an affirmative right to vote. Jackson died because white supremacists who controlled Southern governments had circumvented the 15th Amendment's prohibition against denying the right to vote, quote, on account of race, color, or condition of previous servitude. They did so through patently discriminatory, although seemingly race-neutral, restrictions such as poll taxes and literacy tests. As the pioneers of modern democracy, the founders understood that the right to vote grounds all other rights, that it empowers Americans to become participants in government rather than mere petitioners. But it was their omission of voting rights that triggered a war over America's embattled vote that continues to rage in the halls of Congress and in the courtrooms of federal judges. Yet, as in Marion, Alabama, it has spilled into the streets, too, with life and death at stake and the ongoing struggle for people's right to consent in their governing. Opposition to voting rights for all Americans has revolved around three critical issues. Despite the revolutionary rallying cry of no taxation without representation for most of U.S. history, the American political leadership has considered suffrage not a natural right, but a privilege bestowed by government on a political community restricted by considerations of wealth, sex, race, residence, literacy, criminal conviction, and citizenship. The notion of privileged access to the vote survives into our own time, albeit in subtler forms than in the past. Since the early republic, proponents of a limited vote have waved the banner of voter fraud in earlier times to justify the disenfranchisement of supposedly corruptible people such as the propertyless workers, women, racial minorities, or immigrants. Today, it is the allegations of such forms of alleged election fraud as voter impersonation, repeat voting, voting by non-citizens, or balloting in the name of dead people that are used to justify restrictive measures like voter photo ID laws or draconian purges of registration rolls. Numerous studies have documented that such voter fraud is vanishingly small in recent elections, but the outcry continues as loudly as ever. Disputes over the vote have been intensely partisan, with principal justifications for voting restrictions functioning as thinly masked attempts to favor one party over another. From the end of Reconstruction through the early 20th century, for example, it was the lily-white Democratic Party that benefited politically from suppressing the African-American vote. In recent years, the partisan calculations have reversed, as African Americans have become the most reliable of Democratic voters, and Republicans have come to depend on the white vote. The book, The Embattled Vote in America, by Alan J. Lichtman. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.